1: My name is Andrew Counsel. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how.
0: All right, welcome back, everybody, to UN50 uh, from the Bull City. For those of you that may not know, we are recording out of Durham, North Carolina, the Bull City. And UN50... Uh, thank you for those that are frequent listeners and those of you that may be new that may not know what you and Five O. It's a business that I started back in 2015. And what I do is I go around and um, help people, teach people, I have presentations and workshop on how to safely interact with law enforcement. It is one of those presentations where I'm not really concerned about you liking the popo. Uh, it's about you just getting home it's about everybody getting home to inc- to include law enforcement so we we've, we've been doing that for several years and so uh what <clears throat> we're doing tonight is we have a guest um Mr. Tyrone Lamont Baker that we met uh at a at a workshop several about a month a little yeah about two months now i guess um here in Durham and uh he was very supportive he even he even did a little video for us so that I could push out there. So that was really cool of him to do that. And then my co-host, for those of you that know, Andrew is my nephew, and he's my co-host. My other co-host, Harmony Chavis, was not able to, to join us tonight. So first of all, Andrew, how are things going with you?
1: Going well. Um, adulting. I think I've been <laughs> talking about adulting for a while, but it's okay, because I feel like I'm not going to get used to it So I turn like 57, so it's fine. Not- <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and and when he says adulting, it means he just graduated from college earlier this year. Now he has his own apartment all by his lonesome and trying not to be a stalking kind of auntie. So I'm trying to figure if I can go visit. But you know, I guess we'll work that out. So.
1: Okay, you can stop me as much as you want.
0: Sure. You say that now.
1: But I'm <laughs>
0: so we have uh, Mr. Tyrone Lamont Baker. Uh, thank you, Tyrone, for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no. I um, Tyrone and I met uh, with my with Abby, who's our social media guru, uh, at a presentation. Like I said, he was he was very supportive, and it's always nice to know um, that he supported the work that that I'm doing. And when he and I talked, I was just intrigued about his lived experience and his willingness to share that, and the work that he's doing. Uh, with that he i'm gonna let him kind of go into that he sent me his bio we'll have it up on there but tyron i, I kind of want you to talk about what you do i think one of the things you step up you volunteer you're on the board of directors so tell me about that and then i also want you to tell me about the north carolina the north carolina center uh in actual innocence that you're also working with so just tell us a little bit about yourself before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty
2: okay uh well for starters um as was alluded to earlier, I am just as involved. I, I did 14 years in prison. I got locked up at the age of 19. I was released at the age of 33. I actually was released in August of 2020, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, while I was incarcerated, you know, I of course made a commitment to educate myself and you know, becoming the best version of myself I could become. So I took countless classes. I read at least 630 non-fiction books. I taught, I was a... Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was a I was a tutor. I was a, a food service. I was teacher's assistant for the food service technology class for a couple of years. I was a business lecturer. Um, wow. I, I did. A, I was busy. Let's put it like that. I managed to um, actually delve into writing um, probably about six or seven years into my bid. I, I wrote a few articles that got published in academic journals, um, both here in the United States and in Canada um i actually linked up with a few professors with whom i co-author articles with and that kind of led to me authoring my first book which is called a convict's perspective critiquing Penology and inmate rehabilitation it's a a pseudo-academic text that's about um prison and, and really the study of prisons and the ways in which prisons can be a little bit more um contributive to society um instead of you know their current practice which is is not so much um, you know, from there, the, the book kind of led to so many more opportunities that I've been lucky enough to take advantage of. I was uh, actually I received a sentence reduction. Um, I wasn't technically supposed to be released until 2029. I managed to get out early. Um, there were some very solid connections that I made to a bunch of very, very um, solid people who believed in me. Um, so that of course led to a sentence reduction since I've been out, like I uh, like was alluded to earlier. I joined the board of Step Up, Step Up Durham, which is an organization they help individuals who are disenfranchised or who've been um who are justice involved, they help them with job placement, employment training, things of that nature. I'm a member of Bro Capital, which is a black male-centric financial services firm. Um, I actually work now, my full-time job is at the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. We basically help guys who have been wrongfully convicted, and we help them fight their charges. We help guys get exonerated for the most part. It's a small law firm that's based here in Durham. It's been around for about 20 years. Um, I, I have done speaking engagements with the University of Pittsburgh at Greensburg with, it's it's actually a, a litany of, of uh, wow. organizations that I work with. Um, oh. it, it's, it's it, I've been busy, just put it like that. I've, I've oh. definitely
0: been busy. Man. I mean I I'm sitting here in awe. I mean, that that's awesome. you doing a lot. You've written a book. Uh, I want to hear a little bit more about that. And and you were uh, open to me. Oh, I also wanted for, for Durham, I also want to give, so you graduated from Riverside High School. Yeah,
2: Riverside, 2005.
0: Yeah. Pirates, Riverside, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, what, and I hope you're okay with some of the, you know, because I, I really want to because, like I said, I'm going to be talking to you offline, but, you know, you said you did a lot. You've done a lot of reading. You did a lot of this in prison. Right. And you got you went in and when you were 19?
2: Yeah, so was 19. Yes. I 19.
0: Kind of. Uh, and tell me what what you all this stuff you read, you you applied yourself when you got in, when you were in. Right. What mm-hmm. happened to not. Did Were you not applying yourself? Previously,
2: before you went
0: in,
2: before oh gone? no, I, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not Oh no, no, it's not, I'm, I'm an open book, so whatever you know. So um, prior to prison, I actually um was raised in a solidly middle class family, you know, both parents in the household. I, I grew up down the street from Northern High School, uh, pretty much in between Northern and Riverside High School, off of the okay. latter road. It was yeah, split split level home, manicure lawn, Ooh, you know.
0: <laughs> there
2: you go. <laughs> so. I, yeah, I played sports. Uh, you know, I was I was I wasn't the the typical, I guess, you know, convict story. So um I actually uh basically got into a situation with an individual and I wasn't in the right frame of mind at the time. I had went through a, a, a breakup that I took way too hard, you know, and um so and on the heels of that breakup, I managed to get into a confrontation with an individual. And I had this, you know, F the world mentality at the time because I just I just wasn't thinking clearly. And, uh, you know, this individual introduced guns into our beef and I responded accordingly. And basically me and a friend of mine uh, shot an individual's vehicle up and a friend of mine who's my co-defendant uh, hit the hit the individual in the head. I, I shot out the individual's taillight and the individual uh, died as a result of the injury so my co-defendant was given a life sentence and i was sentenced to 22 years and seven months in prison mm-hmm. and what i didn't know was the victim in my case who was a caucasian gentleman um he had family members who were court officials and that kind of didn't work in my favor I, I knew none of this at the time you know so right. um when sentencing when it was time to be sentenced you know i guess they they made an example out of me and my co-defendant so right uh that that was I I basically strayed from the path on which I was raised and it led to me getting incarcerated. You know, I applied myself very much so throughout most of my adolescence, throughout most of my teen years. You know, this was one particular incident that, you know, I had a had a very bad few months right there and that changed my life forever. You know, so um, that's just that's just how it happened. I mean, since then, you know, I've definitely been dedicated to, to trying to alleviate some of the misery I've caused, you know, so. wow.
0: So, so when you, you know, with this journey that you're on now, because you're working, at, like you said, you have board of directors, step up, you're doing this work for the North Carolina Center for Actual Innocent. Kind of tell me, what, what's your message? You know what I'm saying? What, what, what is, you know, when, when you know, there's all this stuff out here now talking about, you know, we need to take care of social issues, education, minimum wage, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the stuff. Right, that doesn't belong in law enforcement's lap, you know, mental health, substance abuse. But so, what is it that you, when you're out here delivering your message, yeah. like you said? So, what what is your message to kind of say? You know, I get that, but what, what do you feel like you can say that would trigger? But okay, maybe I don't need to do that. or I don't need to. How do you how do you help somebody if that might be the next step? Might be they get ready to go do something that yeah. that's not going to end well. How, how do you help a person? based on your lived experience? What's your your words of wisdom? One thing, they're
2: actually two sides of two two ways to answer that question. Um, on a macro level, you know, I am a big fan of economic empowerment. You know, I do believe that that is one of the things um, where my, that's, that's kind of like my culture's, my generation's civil rights movement in a sense. You know, that's, that's just how I feel. I, I do think that economic empowerment, not just accumulating money, but uh, accumulating um, the influence that comes along with being economically strong as a people can help I guess, get rid of some of this misery that we face as a community, as a culture, you know. So I do practice or, or I guess preach, you know, the message of <laughs> economic self-sufficiency, um, accumulating wealth, uh, you know, acquiring income, producing assets. You know, I do think that a lot of the problems that we face as a culture, as a community come from poverty. You know, so Mm -hmm. I think that the best way to combat, you know, criminality is by going at the source. Oftentimes it is poverty and the things that come along with it. So on a macro level is economic empowerment is my is my primary message as an on an individual level. If I'm speaking to some some young guy that's that's on the verge of, you know, making some some mistakes. uh, I have a I have a a unique um, story and a unique ability to use my story to to really to really reach them. You know, I can I can definitely let them know like like, bro. Not only can I speak your language, little homie, I did 14 years. This ain't this ain't no, you know, motivational speaker that's coming at you. I'm letting you know, like, it's a lot of things that we suffer from due to a lack of knowledge. And one thing these little young dudes don't know is that, you know, their life of the streets. That's something that is it's a trap. You know, it's something that um has been used against our people for an extremely long time, you know, on the heels of slavery. The criminal justice system was used to, uh, I guess, sidestep the Emancipation Proclamation. And people have seen 13th, Aver Duvernay. Everybody know the 13th Amendment has a loophole baked into it, where slavery is abolished except if you commit a crime. You know, so everybody, that's that's not a, a hidden fact. You know, and ever ever since the end of the Civil War, people who have never had our best interests in mind have used that to keep us in our place as a people. You know, and so I, I think that falling into the trap uh, of, you know, viewing criminality as something that's a trap active and something that's worthy of pursuing is basically playing right into the hands of people who have despised us since we've been over here you know so I I think that on a micro level I think the most effective weapon that I've used like as a counselor I was a counselor for a while when I was incarcerated the most effective weapon that I've used I mean I don't this isn't a popular position to have, but it's been effective is to paint it as if it's like a kind of like a us versus them. Them being everybody who historically has not liked us and has shown so with their actions, you know. So I think that having a, a common enemy and then showing these young guys like, look, this is how we can combat these forces that are against us. X, Y and Z. I bet you ain't know this. I bet you ain't know that. Like and, and dropping stuff like it's, it's been effective. You know, I've, I've managed to talk a few guys off the ledge, so to speak. And I've managed to encourage a few guys to pursue um I guess, legitimate or legal uh, economic empowerment and put drug dealing aside and, and things of that nature. So it's, it's been effective in my experience on a micro level. But overall, I think economic empowerment is like the the third leg of our, I guess, liberation triangle. You know, um, both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, all, uh, both of them before their, before their deaths, they talked about the need for black people to be economic powerhouses. You know, they, they talked about the need for us to be socially influential for us to be politically involved and for us to be economically advanced. Of course, both of them were assassinated before their economically advanced message could be disseminated to the masses, you know, but I do think that, um, you know, right now this is, this is our time to move. And economic empowerment is a way to help guys, you know, get on their feet and stop living lives that are beneath us.
0: Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, I already just <laughs> listening to you and I'm like, what? I mean, you, 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 uh, you're Talking my language, my man, Andrew. Before I, <laughs> <laughs> before I get because I got some something to say, but go ahead, Andrew. You got something?
1: I guess I have a question about, um, like being a black male, um, in society just in general. i hear a lot about people saying, you know, the second you're born into this world, you're already at a setback, um, just because of the, the color of the skin and also your gender, and then those combined, um, giving us like the, the anti privilege of what other people have, um, in society. So, I guess, like, um, taking taking that, I guess, look at your life, what would you say? Um, I want to take a switch. Well, how would you say that being being a black male has benefited you in regard to your experiences and also things you're able to teach others?
2: Well, for one, uh, I have this sense of, of cultural pride that kind of like motivates me to, uh, I guess, help others, you know, and I think that that sense of cultural pride comes from knowing that our people have had uh light skinned foot on our necks for so long. You know what I mean? So me being a black man in society, uh, I I do think that prior to prison, one of the biggest advantages, I hate to say this, um, now this is, again, might not be the most politically correct answer, but one of my biggest advantages from being a black man prior to prison was the fact that people had such low expectations. And by people, I mean people in positions of power who are not used to seeing people who look like me, you know. Able to speak on a level that is above or at their level, you know, so I think that low expectations were something that I was saddled with. And because I was willing to to work hard and to demonstrate that I'm, you know, capable of performing on the highest levels in any category, I was able to exceed those expectations, which kind of opened up a lot of doors for me, you know, and it's unfortunate because those low expectations are rooted in racism. You know, what I mean, but I figure, you know, the best way to kind of like combat it is to use it to my advantage. You know, there have been times in school where going to school, just me being who I was, uh, a teacher or a substitute teacher, whoever expected me to be the class clown or expecting me to be the guy who who acted out. But, you know, when I was the guy who was um, kind of like answering all of her questions, when I was the guy who was making all these 100s on these tests in school, you know, it was a, a shock to him, you know, and me surprising them in that way. It gave me a little bit of freedom to do things that that I enjoy, you know, which I I, I use that freedom in a way that, that I probably shouldn't have used it. You know, sometimes it was, it was OK for me to be, you know, it was OK for me to be a little late to class. It was OK for me to, you know, sometimes not even show up to class because when I did show up, I would help tutor some of the other kids in the class. And I kind of used that. I, I, I abused that freedom. But I do think had I used that freedom in a way that was a little bit more um, conducive to my growth that I probably would have been much better off. You know, so so I the advantages of being a black man. Hey, hold on, I mean, let me rewind too. First of all, I mean, being a black man in America, like, but we were where like for real. You know what I mean? We were set. We are a are, are people that, are, we are a gender and a people who, <laughs> A, hands down, um, arguably, debatably, are probably the most attractive men on the planet, probably the most capable men on the planet, probably some of the most resilient men on the planet. So just those innate traits are giving me a natural advantage. You know, it's other societal forces that have come against us to try to keep us, you know, from tapping into that potential. But we do have that potential. So that's something that comes from being a black man. But the low expectations and and my ability to exceed those expectations are probably something that I can I can point to to answer your question.
1: That's good.
2: Thank you.
0: That's you know I'm really like power to the people. So <laughs> <laughs> now you know what and um, just to go back what you were talking about you know you were making the A's, making the hundreds and stuff and you told you took advantage of that that's interesting I don't that that when you say that it makes sense that but to have you actually say I I. Because of what I knew I was doing well, and because of that, I did X because of that because I could get away with it. I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually say, but but when I look back at some of the people that I know in school or have met, oh, that, I was like, that's what they were doing. You know, because I, I wasn't that person, you know, because I wasn't making A's and hundreds, and I had to stay in class. But I that's – so when you – when you see another person or if you're around youth that does that, do you give them that same message that, you know, look, man, you're, you're smart, you know? So use that, I I guess that that wealth for lack of better word in a productive manner. And you're saying you wish you had done that.
2: Yeah, I definitely, Mm -hmm. I definitely um, wish I would have, you know, I, managed to garner a lot of a lot of influence amongst my peers um, prior yeah. to prison and I just didn't use that influence constructively I could have been sitting some of my homeboys down on the basketball team teaching them how to start businesses you know teaching them how to you know get into real estate but instead you know I was just that little high school kid that wanted to smoke weed and play basketball you know so right. it definitely um it, it, I I, did, I could have used it differently you know I wish yeah. I would have used it differently but you know
0: wow and and also wanted you were, you were obviously talking about how the slavery and and you know just the poverty of it all, um is just it's hard to break that you know get through that, um, you know just I mean being in law enforcement uh, not all the time but I see that up close and personal you know saying uh, it's not my lived experience I mean I've I've had to do what I had had to do to get where I needed to get right? but. Um, I also recognize that some people it's 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 harder for some to be able to break that, but they you know they're working toward doing that. And and as a culture, we we have a tendency, at least in my opinion, that we also have a tendency to, to forget some of us, you know, and that uh, we need to figure out how to reach back and go, you know, I get that this mother who's working these four or five jobs. It can't be home with with the black male who is now probably out on the corner doing something and not understanding what that looks like for her, you know. And then f- figuring yeah. out how, as a community, not a community of of social workers, but just a community of other black folks, to able to help her do what she needs to do. Does that make sense? I mean, just <laughs> how how do we you know how do we how do we collectively as, as black folks, we got to go, you know, we need to reach back. Yeah. I'm, I'm out. You know, I mean, it's like, once we get out, it's I'm out and we don't figure out how to reach back. And you ain't got to get, but one, you know, all you got to do is just pick one. And so how do you feel about that? I mean, just, yeah, and yeah.
2: Now I I think that uh I guess to answer your question, um when it comes to us, uh, I guess, uniting as a community to help um, steer some of these, Young guys, young people, in in the right direction. Um, giving back is key. You know, it's hard for people to be what they can't see. I would love for guys to look at me and see an example of post prison success. So guys who are incarcerated can see this example of post prison success and be like, okay, I see what's possible. You know, like I would love. I, I think that that is giving back. I'm glad you brought it up because that's an important part of of the process of the, the, the process of combating and oppression and, and liberating our people, um, intellectually and otherwise. So the reason, as a matter of fact, you and I met at straight talk support group, I did a fundraiser with straight talk support group, which is a transition house for guys who are just getting out of prison. I helped them raise, raise several thousand dollars on a virtual fundraiser because I know that they needed resources to kind of help them provide the services wow. they provide. So dudes who wow. make it, so to speak, not only is it, Important that they give back, but it's also important that they maintain that relatability that you know they probably had before they made it, so to speak. You know, so um, I can speak to uh, a young guy and I can relate to a young guy who is coming home from prison, and I can let them know, um, you know, not only about resources that are available to them, but I can say, look, bro, look what I did, you know, and you can do the same thing. You know and I mean, so yeah. I do. And on on top of that. Um, Uh, One of the things that is extremely important is specifics. You know, I've met up with a lot of people in the nonprofit sector here in Durham who are aiming and seeking to do great things. But when it comes to actually talking to those who need help, the direct service providers, there is a, a, a lack of specific, tangible, actionable items that are presented to these young dudes that they actually feel like they can pursue. You know, so um, I, I used to tell guys, for example, uh, we used to talk about cleaning up the projects and I used to tell them how uh, the local elementary schools and middle schools received their funding based on the property values of the communities from which the students come from. You know what I mean? So I felt like that was a powerful message. Y'all clean up your hoods, your schools get more funding, your kids get better resources, blah, blah, blah. But then I started realizing, like, hold on, this this message ain't resonating like it's supposed to. So I dug a little deeper. I said, look, bro, so I'm, I'm going to teach you how to start a business and I'm going to teach you why you should start a business. But for starters, I'm going to let you know that, you know, for example, you can start your business, start your, your LLC, for example, and put your car in your LLC's name. So now when the police get behind you and run your task, they won't see your name. They'll see your company's name like as far as registration and stuff like that goes. So little messages like that, they started to pick up on it like, hmm. I didn't know that, you know. So, so I start hitting them with little, little, very actionable, very specific things like that, and that's something I found was effective, and that's something I think that a lot of people in the activist community, who or a lot of direct service providers, kind of overlook when it comes to, in uh, particular, young black men who are on the verge of delving into criminality. You know, so um, reaching back is important. You know, so is having a message that's tailored to your audience, having a message, and being someone who is relatable. So those three things together, I think are one of the, one of the vital components of, of helping the youth.
0: So because of your lived experience and the moment that happened at the age of 19, do you think, um, you would be the person that you are now or do you think because of that moment it has created you? I mean, cause 600 plus books, thats a lot of reading. I mean, so, I mean, and, and I can, I mean, it's clear that, um, I mean, it's just, I mean, you're awesome. I, I love him. I love Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so Appreciate it. yeah, no, no, no. I mean, seriously. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So based on that moment, you know, if that moment had not occurred, who do you think you might have been? And because that moment did occur uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's created this, you, it has, it, it, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I've had some stuff happen to me that's been pretty public. Right. And so it, 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 it moved, it kind of pushed me out. I mean, I had to grow in a different direction that I didn't think I was going to ever have to grow in. It made me have to grow in a particular direction because it was a public scandal. So, I mean, that's hard, you know, not anything like you, but, you know, getting your personal and professional integrity blasted all over the media that's, you know, you want to crawl up in a hole somewhere. So what, what has, if that moment had not occurred, do you think you would, is this your thing or did all of that, you know, is this where, you know, this is the space you're supposed to be in? Was the universe saying, you know, this is where you know, would you have arrived at this moment without that moment?
2: I guess uh honestly, BJ, I don't I don't think I would have. And okay. a primary reason is because I grew up relatively sheltered. You know, of course I had like homeboys and stuff that, you know, lived in the project, family members, you know, sold drugs and, and things of that nature, but I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where that wasn't my necessary reality. It were I could could dibble and dabble in it when I want to, you know what I mean? I could go in, I can go out and hang out with the dudes at the house parties. You know what I mean? I can go out and go to the liquor house and stuff. I could kick it in Bradtown and places like that. And then I knew I I could go home and (laughs) put all that stuff aside and feel safe, you know? So that wasn't, so I knew I could dibble and dabble in it, but, because I could dibble and dabble it, and I never really understood the seriousness. I never understood the broad societal forces that are coming okay. against people who are living in these impoverished communities, these predominantly yes. chocolate impoverished communities. Yes. So um, I didn't, I don't think I would have gotten as deep of an understanding of the forces that we are up against had I not went through this, because mass incarceration, the the just mass criminalization, those were things that just weren't, on my radar you know i was um i got accepted to a couple of universities right before i got locked up so my intention was to go and i wanted to major in mechanical engineering so i would have wow. went, went that direction and um i, I seriously doubt i would have encountered enough stimuli to provoke this response i don't think i would have encountered enough things you know i don't think i would have encountered that because i would have continued to live a sheltered life detached from the people that i claimed to have identified with back then you know so um i don't think i would have arrived at this point now Now, of course, nobody knows for sure what would have or or could have happened. You know, Mm -hmm. who's to say, you know, I wouldn't have been exposed to it in many other ways. There are plenty of people out here who are doing great things, who are powerhouses, who did not go the route that I went? You know, I mean, there are plenty of people who lived an extremely, you know, green vanilla life who are solid activists now. You know? Love it. And green so, vanilla.
0: What, what yeah. is green vanilla?
2: Green and <laughs> vanilla. You know, <laughs> there are plenty of people that's, just
0: That, that's, milk that, nothing that is milk. Look, that is milk toast <laughs> in another whole language. i don't know but <laughs> heard of green vanilla. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you, you ain't been exposed to crap if you live yeah. in a green vanilla life. Man. Yeah,
2: yeah, both together. So. <laughs> I, know, right? I don't. I don't know. Like I said, I think there, there are some solid people, and I can name a few who who don't have dark past. They have great past, great right. upbringings. You know, college educated, great in school, wonderful social circles. But they are very much woke and very much active on you know the the anti mass incarceration scene. You know, so right. I don't know. I might have went that way. Who knows? You know, or I might have went to Wall Street. I don't know. You know, so um, I yeah, do think that I, I, I'm glad that. Uh, to be honest, I don't know what forces led me in this direction, but I'm glad that I was able to use my time inside to, like I said earlier, become the best version of myself. You know, so um that is something that I I definitely don't regret. Of course I regret the things that landed me in prison. And yes. I definitely am not advocating for prison. I hate prison. I despise it. It is contemporary slavery in many ways. It is residue of the slavery that our ancestors endured. It's just a contemporary version. It is horrible and it's ran by people who dislike. Me and dislike people who look like me and probably would have disliked my ancestors. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, prison is not the place for um societal advancement. It's not the place to to grow. I, I became the best version of myself, not because I went to prison, but despite going to prison. You know, so but I'm glad that I was able to use that time and and try to, to make it so that when I came home, I could hit the ground running.
0: Wow. I mean, I, and I appreciate that too. I think it's really because we never know what the universe is going to toss our way. Exactly. And it, it really just—what do you make out of that? Whatever it tosses your way, and and that kind of—I guess—determines the next step. You know, and you made the decision to, to to get the best of you in this moment, and here you are. You know, I mean, you're preaching, man. I, I mean, I'm loving this. This is just. This is powerful. Um, I think, uh, tell me a little bit, uh, tell me a little bit more about your book. Um, cause we're, we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll definitely okay. going to put a link out on, on, when we, when we post the podcast so people can, can, can look at it, but kind of, I mean, I don't want, you know, like I said, I want to give away this all the story, but kind of tell me what it was that drove you to writing this book and, and what, okay. kind of, you know, cursory of what, what's the message you're trying to send.
2: Okay. So, uh, my book is called A Convict's Perspective, Critiquing Penology and MA Rehabilitation. So what led me to it was, uh, as I said before, I was an avid reader. So I started reading um, textbooks about criminology and penology, which is the study of prisons. So I wanted to see what the so-called experts had to say about the things that I was living through, you know, mm-hmm. the environment that I was living in. So. In reading about, in reading some of the, the work of some of the most prominent criminologists in the country, I started noticing little holes in 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 their arguments. You know, I started noticing like, okay, you are very impressive on paper, and you know you have a lot of respect in those ivory towers, but some of your theories and arguments aren't exactly applicable to my lived experience. You know, so I kind of felt like, yeah. So I was thinking like, you know, here are a lot of people who a have never lived in prison, you know, and uh, for the most part have only looked at prison. From a bird's eye view, or from a detached vantage point, right. So I was like, you know what, I'm in here, and I'm letting you know that my lived experiences are in direct contradiction to your theories, your you know, quote unquote arguments. You know, so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna start writing the truth. I'm gonna start, letting, I'm gonna start writing some 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 literature that can be taken seriously, but also reveals the truth as I see it on the inside. I looked at it like, okay, here are people who may have went to school for a decade, but you know, they're writing about an environment that I lived in for a decade. There isn't a single academic outside of the field of convict criminology who has lived in prison as as long as I do, let alone at all, really. You know, so I'm like, okay, so um, I would think that I'm just as much of an expert as any Penologists or any criminologists, you know, they don't know what is I, I um I was housed at ten different prisons, including the county jail, nine different prisons in the county jail throughout my entire bid. You wow. know, so no there wow. is no administrator, there is no prison staff member working in the state right now who has worked at that many prisons, let alone lived there. And I lived there for a couple of years at each one of them, you know. So I got to see so many different administrations, so many different not only fellow prisoners, but so many different staff members, so many different ways of running prisons, so many different education programs. So many, I saw prisons that didn't have any education programs. Like I saw all of this, you know what I mean? Academies don't see it from the vantage point that I see it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to write this. I'm going to let y'all know what it is for real. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to do so in a way that, that lets you know that um I'm informed. I know what y'all know, but I also know stuff y'all don't. So I definitely um used some of the work of prominent pil- uh, criminologists now like Joan Petersilion and individuals who have made a name for themselves. Hans Tote, these criminologists have made a name for themselves in the worlds of criminology, and I know their theories. I knew their theories in and out, but I also knew where they fell short. You know, So um, after writing, like I said, I got a few articles published, some academic journals, and I got the attention of a couple really progressive and open-minded academics, like Dr. Kimberly Cook at U.S.C. Wilmington and uh, Dr. Renee here at U.S.C. Pembroke, uh, Dr. Sharice Carson at U.S.C. Charlotte. So they started kind of paying attention to Dr. Sandra Westerville at U.S.C. Greensboro. They kind of seemed interested in what I had to say. So I was like, "Hey, you know what? I'm um, gonna give you a little bit more, you know." And eventually, so I'm on the yard one day, and I, I'm doing laps with my homeboy who happened to wrote, who happened to write the forward in my book, and he's like, um, "He's like, hey, Ty, how about?" and called me T.Y. in prison. He was like, hey, T.Y., how about you uh, take all your essays that you've been writing and just blend them all together into the form of a book, you know, because they all talk about prison. They're all, you know, critical of mainstream criminology. You know, they're all, you know, based on empirical information, real, lived information. So why not blend it all together into a book? I was like, all right, I'll do it if you write the forward. He was like, bet. So (laughs) I I, I took all my writings, blended them together in the form of a book, made sure everything flows seamlessly and from there, you know, I um, went the self-publishing route, which uh, this is something that I don't think people who have something, one thing that I don't think people recognize about um, writing the type of book that I wrote, uh, which I'm very critical of North Carolina's prison system in particular in my book, um, is that. I'm writing this in an environment where I don't have any control. There were a couple times where my manuscripts just happened to get destroyed in routine oh, locker and you oh, know there were a couple of times where you know officers are, are like, you know, just all up in my business, like, look what you what you doing. I had to hide like I'm Anne Frank during World yeah. War II or something. You know, what I am mean? <laughs> having to hide my literature, so oh, you wow. know nobody, you know, what I mean, so I'm like, I couldn't. I had to make sure I had to write in secret. Sometimes, you know, there were times where I was sitting in the cell, you know and I mean, sitting by the window because I happened to have one of the little prison lights outside my window, so I'm because they done cut the lights off so I'm sitting by the window writing my eyes hurting and stuff because I know I mean I had to kind of like write certain parts in secret because I felt I felt like you know doing all this work I felt like at any given moment you know the staff members might come in and, and see what I'm trying to oh, do and wow. get rid of wow. my work so it kind of so I, I kind of had this doing self-publishing a book outside of prison is hard you know so from within <laughs> it was like I was like oh man so I was I did my own marketing um I, I, me and my mom my mom is that's my queen so she uh she helped me in ways that I can't even explain. So what I would do is after my book was published, I asked my mom, I said, "Mom, can you give me a list of the most prominent um, criminologists and penologists here in North Carolina? So she was like, cool. And of course, all of them worked at all the universities across the state. So right. I had their mailing, I got their mailing addresses, too. So I was like, OK, mom. so this is what we're going to do. I said, "Mom, we're going to get 30 copies of my book. You know and I mean, and I'm going to pick the 30, you know, most influential criminologists here in the state. And I was like, she was like, cool. So I was like, how about this? We're going to go in each criminologist. We're going to find something that they have written, like an article they have gotten published, a chapter they've written in a book or whatever. And I want you to send it to me. So my mama was like, cool. So my mama would send it to me. I would go through and I would say, okay, I agree with this. This is bullshit. But I agree with (laughs) I would go through and I would. I would dissect it and i would write basically like a little report on this piece of literature from this other academic. so i would send them that report that i wrote criticizing their work or compliment oh, their work and right. i would send them a copy of my book and i would send them a letter like hey this is something that i wrote about the piece you wrote here's a copy of my book you know i mean i just wanted to make myself known to you introduce myself to you and that got their attention you know so wow. so i kept i just kept doing that until you know i started gaining some traction so my book got mentioned in a few um i mean it became a part of a the curriculum at a couple of universities is in several university libraries, and and you know from that. Oh there, that's wow! How I, that's how I did my marketing. You know, so.
0: Oh man, <laughs> that's wow! That's awesome. Hey, hey Andrew, did you know the the professor he mentioned from? Because Andrew just recently graduated from UNCG. I heard
2: yes. I know okay. the
1: name. I know the name.
2: Of- okay. Oh, father She's she's actually super cool, man. She's she's dope. She's cool.
0: <laughs> wow. So, I mean, everything that you've been through, uh, Tyrone, I, yeah, this is awesome stuff. Uh, what what are you most thankful for?
2: My family. My family rode with me from day one. I had people who, who um, my immediate family. You know, right, there right. were a lot of people who, uh, I had distant family members and, and close friends who who cut me off. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I, when I got locked up, it was like, you know, they were ghosts. They, yeah. they basically, I was written off, you know, but my mom, my dad, They they stay right there. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. It was my mom, my dad that was sending me money while I was locked up. And because I had money, I didn't have to gamble. I didn't have to hustle. I didn't have to sell drugs or extort people or things like that to make sure my stomach won't growling when I went to sleep at night. I didn't have to do that because they kept me with money. So because I didn't have to do those things, I could focus solely on reading and studying and educating myself. So they took care of the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs so I could climb to the top to self-actualization, you know? So my family, like they, I'm super grateful for them just riding with me because I can't, you know, I, I can't do anything I couldn't have done anything without them being in my corner you know what I mean I wouldn't be free right now if they wouldn't have reached out to to Butch Williams and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, wouldn't, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be free like so I, I yeah. it's it's them you know so I, I actually a uh, part of my journey a part of my quest is to make sure that um I live a life that's worthy of the investment that they've made into me you know, wow. what I mean, I got to make sure that like I pay homage to those that came before me and those that supported me so that I could grow and thrive. And I got to make sure I'm I'm becoming that type of dude that can pay it forward. You know what I mean? So right. I, my family, I'm most grateful for them. Hands down.
0: Wow. Wow, man. So, you know, that makes sense, clearly. And, you know, my little stuff that I went through, I tell you, man, it, you, you find out who your friends are. You know, I used to tell people after my little scandal, I was like, they were like how'd you do that? I said, well, my Christmas my Christmas card list just got a little shorter.
2: Yeah, it got a little <laughs>
0: shorter. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right about that. You're right that about that. Stamps. But, you know, when you say that, though, I, one of the things that uh, I remember seeing as a police officer, and I have no, I don't remember the woman or anything like that. And when you talk about family, you just never know. I mean, your family, no matter what, is always going to be there. And I went to this call and this lady, this daughter, they were having an argument. It was near the intersection of, of uh, Austin Avenue and uh, I don't know, you know right across from Centrals Camp. Anyway, she okay. was in an argument, and the daughter ran out, and the last thing she said to her mother, and I was like, she said, "I hope you die." and And you know, I've seen some stuff, right? And that particular moment has has just stuck with me because I've often wondered, could, does she even know what she just said to her mother? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I know you say stuff in heated moments, but, you know, you saying that, you know, you want to give, give back. They supported you and you want to make sure that they know that, you know, you appreciate it. And obviously you do uh, when people just don't realize, you know, you have these moments in his family. You know, it's yeah. family that's going to take care of you. And I don't know. Exactly. I, when you say that, I mean, like I said, that when people talk about family, that that moment in, in that for me just resonated because you you that's all you got, because everybody else is going to be like, bye. Yeah. Bye. And, and that's that's me. unfortunate,
2: you know, and um, seeing a, in a situation like that, like that young lady. um, yeah. See, when, when I hear when I hear that, see, what comes to mind is. I'm thinking about, um, first of all, the area that you're talking about is predominantly black, you know, yeah. um, over off Austin Avenue, across from central. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I'm assuming you're talking about like around Matt Duga, around yeah. the area. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know,
2: so you know, what I hear is I hear uh, a young woman and her mother who are members of a race of people who have been traumatized. Right. We are dealing with a lot of psychological trauma, a lot of emotional pain that a lot of times we don't know how to deal with, but it's very yes. chronic. And very yeah. acute, you know, so a lot of times that that pain uh, comes out in ways that we wouldn't want it to come out. You know, right. I, I see that. I see somebody struggling, not knowing how to deal with the emotions that she's dealing with. Yeah. You Yeah. Know I mean dealing with situations that aren't entirely self-induced. A lot of her condition isn't her fault, you know what I mean? And she doesn't understand it. That's probably frustrating. You know, and actually um, going back to justice-involved situations and people, a lot of individuals end up prison because they're trying to seek some type of relief from that chronic pain that they feel or the sense of, uh, I guess, historical disadvantage that we've been subjected to and the things that that causes. You know, so you, you got a lot of guys in prison right now because of their egos being so fragile they felt the need to assert their dominance or assert their manhood because they live in a country that won't allow them to do it in the ways that it allows, you know, mainstream white America to do it. You know, so it's like okay, well, um, you, I, I feel like I can't go get a job. I feel like I can't excel. I feel like I can't realize a life that has some sophistication to it by the traditional means. Well, I'm going to go and do it my way. I'm going to go do it how I know how to do it and it leads to incarceration. I see a lot of people turning to drugs because they got this pain that they're dealing with and they just want the pain to stop. So they make impulsive decisions. They put a needle in their arm. They sniff powder. They do whatever they do to alleviate that pain that they feeling with. And eventually that becomes a habit or an addiction. And that leads to, you know, incarceration many times, if not death or whatever, or physical um, dissolution or whatever, you know. So I see that a lot of this historical trauma that we've been dealt, that, that we've been subjected to as a people is it's causing uh, a lot of issues right now that I think that we really need to address on a broad level and as individuals, you know, so and and UN50 is a great organization because um, a lot of times when people are having these moments where they are acting out or resorting to, um, I guess, coping mechanisms that may not be the most healthy, a lot of times they encounter law enforcement during these times. You know, is I'm pretty sure you, as a law enforcement officer, have counter, encountered people who probably used to have great lives, but then de- dove into drugs and, you know, got strung out or are, are lashing out because somebody disrespected them and now they feel like yeah. they got to make their name right. And, you know, what I mean, I'm yeah. pretty sure you've encountered that. You know, yeah. so. You, People in law enforcement encounter a lot of um, situations that, you know, stem from the historical traumas we've been dealing with. And I think that teaching people not only um, what their rights are, but how to make it through those situations and still maintain a sense of dignity and self-respect. And, you know, and, and I think that that's an important service that y'all love about, you know, it's, it's really difficult to um, have a successful quote unquote successful interaction with, Uh, law enforcement, um, knowing that law enforcement uh, for so long wasn't an organization that was about the upliftment of black people. You know what I mean? I'm talking about not only in recent history, uh, from the crack epidemic all the way back to the slave slave patrols, you know, so yes. it's not like uh, we have had an outstanding relationship with law enforcement. You look at pictures in a lot of those old photos of us being hung from trees as somebody with a badge in the audience, you know? So it's not yes. like, you know, uh, an amazing organization for or to Black people historically, you know, so that is always in people's minds, especially people who look like me when we encounter law enforcement. So yes. teaching us what our rights are and what our rights aren't is extremely important so that we can still get through these encounters and be like, okay, I can deal with my trauma. I can deal with my issues in a way that's healthy. I can come out of this interaction with some integrity and some self-respect. You know, I don't have to be belittled. I don't have to be taken advantage of. But I also don't have to be like uh, all types of, of negative things that you yeah. know I shouldn't. Do. You know. So I, I mean, I think that that's an important service y'all are providing because y'all stepping in that in that gap right there to help people deal with their traumas. And I don't think a lot of law enforcement officers realize that.
0: Yeah. You know what? And I appreciate that because I, I thank you for that. Uh, uh, God, I mean, that that means a lot coming from you, because uh, that that really is what I'm trying to do. I mean, you know, take off the uniform. I'm black. Going to be black. <laughs> you know, that's going to be the first thing, you know what I'm saying? And and I, I get that. And so for me, trying to figure out how to let, get black bodies to get through that interaction, you know, and then officers need to understand, you know, you got to understand the, what people are going through. I mean, that's a that's a crisis moment. And people are not just sometimes rational. So, you know, slow your roll sometime, Popo, slow your roll. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but, and I appreciate you talking about the trauma cause I was uh, the, so the other piece of that is um, when I step into a, a, a space and I'm going to call or something like that, just what you just said, I realize that there's a lot of trauma. I mean, it's generational trauma, you know? So I go to a house Tyrone and, I in some instances, I've arrested everybody in the house, you know, from grandpa all yeah. the way down, you know, <laughs> And, I, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be funny, but mm. that, that's a reality. And people don't yeah. understand that. So. So, you know, and then unfortunately, I'm looking at a six year old walking around, you know, trying to be a kid. And I also in the back of my head is law enforcement. I also knowing if nothing in this generational trauma with these individuals, adults don't change. This six-year-old is going to become part of this, yeah. and, you know. So, so the thing for me is how it, I mean, I do you. I mean, obviously, I, I, the work that I do, but also the other piece of that is, come on, community, how because this ain't this. You know, six minutes because I got to go to the next call, so I can't help this generational trauma. Yeah. So, so what is it that we need to tell the community in order to break this cycle? You know, so yeah. they don't need the popo coming in the house talking about we're oh, messing around with somebody. I don't need to know that as a police officer. That's you know, y'all need to work that out. But you got oh, me yes. in here. So what is it that your message would be, or how would you kind of start this dialogue with the community? Say this generational trauma. Police are in here, but the popo ain't gonna fix this. Been going on since grandpa. And yeah. you know, so and you know, you just mm-hmm. touched on it. How what you know, what would be your like Okay, how do we fix that generational well, stuff?
2: Well, I think the uh, the message would be well. well for starters, um, in my personal life, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm capable. I feel like I'm I can protect myself, protect my family. I feel like I'm good when it comes to resolving conflicts and resolving problems. So in my mind, I don't feel like there's a need to call the police if I have a problem, and that problem can't be solved by something that's on the police's belt. Then but, I don't need to call the police. You feel me? Right, so because exactly. I'm not gonna call them for an issue that they can't solve. You know, what I mean, a lot of people call the police just because it's just like, hey, I ain't got nothing else. I ain't got nobody yeah. else to call. And right. you calling the police for a social issue? You know yeah. what I mean? Or, or issue? I'm like, that's not. That's not they. I'm not gonna. <laughs> so, but to answer your question though, I do think that um the biggest message that. Or the message that i managed to get out to a few guys that I found resonated the most was viewing law enforcement as a tool. So um, I used to do a, a like a little, I guess you can call it a a, a regular class that I taught through the more Science simple of America when I was at um, Johnson County Correctional. So one of the things that I kind of demonstrated to guys was uh, I showed them how... Um, law enforcement has been used as a tool, but it has been used by people who historically, you know, like I said, didn't have our best interests in mind. So right. it, it isn't unheard of. If you go through history, you'll find plenty of examples where people with a certain agenda have infiltrated law enforcement and made law enforcement do things that, you know, was in to help them fulfill that agenda. You know, so I look at something like a prime example being something like, uh, all right, I'm gonna t- this is something your listeners probably don't know. So uh, when <laughs> yeah. I was. Would- when I was about 23, 24, uh, maybe about 22, I was younger. I was about 22, 21. I was in a maximum security prison, close custody prison, Pasadena Correctional in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. So um, I kind of like, um, this is my first time being exposed to people who were Aryan nation and active Nazis and you know people like that. I had never been exposed to them prior to this. You know, I grew up in Durham. And, and, and <laughs> around the parts of Durham, I know,
0: right? Really, yeah.
2: they are not having that. You feel know? me? So yeah, yeah, yeah. guys, and of course, I'm, you know, I, I don't look like somebody who would be like an easy win. So it's not like they were out to take advantage of me because they didn't, they didn't know what they was coming against. And also, I'm not trying to take advantage of anybody. So I also managed to sit down with these guys and talk to them. I used to talk to some of the the big Aryan dudes. Like, so what are y'all beliefs like? What, what's y'all history like? Why do y'all think? y'all think like where did that come from so one thing i found was um these these two these aryan dudes i ain't gonna say their names but they were older i was was 21 they were probably like in the early 50s at the time so they're about maybe a couple decades two decades two decades 25 years older than i so um they said that uh in about the late 70s um in Texas, it started in Texas. The highest ranking uh, Aryan nation individuals across the entire state basically put out a directive to all of their subordinates. They basically were like, look, uh, stop growing your hair all long, stop getting all these crazy tattoos. Look, go join the military. When you get out of the military, join law enforcement. You know what I mean? That was kind of like a directive that they put out. You wow. know I mean? um, first, well, of course, this is before I was born. I was born in 86. You know Dang. what I mean? But we're talking about, you know, on, we're talking about kind of like right before the crack epidemic like really took off. There was yeah. a, like a, a, a directive put out amongst the Aryan nation to basically become law enforcement officials. So you got Aryan nation using law enforcement to advance their agenda, to protect white America, to protect, you know, their, you know, uh, interest, you know, yeah. at the same time, making sure we don't protect ours. You know what I mean? And then crack jumps out, comes into the yeah. picture. Well, like, huh, they yeah. have a reason to take yeah. it even further. You know what I mean? And go, yeah. so it's, Right. So it, a law enforcement has been used as a tool by different groups in the past. I'm like, you know what? We can, um, of course, not for the purpose of, of, you know, not for evil purposes, but law enforcement still can be used as a tool. I would love to see people, you know, becoming law enforcement officers who are actually committed to making sure that, you know, my family and the people I identify with are safe and protected. Yes. You know what I mean? I would love for them to, you know, the 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 police see my mom and say, "Hey, Miss Baker, how you doing?" You know what I mean, or <laughs> you know. Instead, I would love the police to see me instead of you know asking me like where I'm going. They say, "Excuse me, Mr. Baker, I ain't mean to bother. You gonna have a nice day." Like I would love for them to make sure our community is is good and safe and make sure there ain't no crazy stuff going on that is directly opposed to our advancement as a people. You know what I mean? And right. we can actually use law enforcement to to make that happen. We just need people who are radical black leftists and people who are unapologetically like committed to our cultural advancement to start, you know, infiltrating that arena right there and start becoming law enforcement officials to make sure that like, okay, instead of me going through viewing uh Lil Richard and the projects, instead of me viewing him as an enemy combatant, he looked like my little cousin. Let me go through and help him out. Like there you bro- go. I- and so it's, yeah. uh, I want to I want to say that because when you look at organizations like the mob like they had no problem infiltrating law enforcement and making sure law enforcement was helping them advance their agenda. You look at like the Italian mob in New York and stuff like that. They had no problem getting the police chiefs and the, all the badge wearers on their side, making sure that they could get away with God knows what. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's not unheard of to use law enforcement as a tool. It's time for radical black leftists to jump on that bandwagon and start using law enforcement as a tool that, that helps our cause, that helps our agenda. And of course, that's a position to have, but I'm just keeping it real. I'm a radical black leftist. And that's what we view. That's how we view it. You know and I mean, we can't we can't make progress. I mean, we got to we got to start making these institutions our own. You know and I mean, I'm a convert. I, I would like to convert this institution from being our enemy to being our asset. You know what I mean, so that's and that's something that, that I think we should kind of like be, be talking about.
0: Wow. That's interesting because on well, my last show that I just got through talking about, we actually talked about recruiting uh, and, and that it's a it's a good profession. And not everybody black may, you know because some black officers still mess up stuff right. But it's a good profession, and local community members should join law enforcement. I mean that you're right. I mean there there's just instead of seeing like you said, looking at folks through the lens of oh that's a bad person, you're looking at them through the eyes of just being another human being, yeah. and, and and just trying to be here and be empathetic. And 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 but that takes the that takes the system that we talked about a little bit, just changing how they recruit, who they look for, what, you know, what they want in a police officer. So, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm um, like, he's extreme leftist <laughs> radical, but I definitely support the idea of uh, more folks who are about just the community being safer and treating people as human beings because you're empathetic to that. So, and, and um yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense because we actually talked a little bit about military. You know, that may not exactly be the best place to go get people. I mean, not saying that they're not good individuals in the military, but we need to maybe the person who's doing customer service, you know, serving, pushing you your big McDonald fries. You know, that might be the person that we need to hire as law enforcement. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah,
2: definitely. And, yeah. and I think that'd be more effective. I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, I, I used to I used to stay in, you know, Northern Durham, you know what I mean? In the community I grew up with, if I was the police and I ain't got no military training whatsoever, but if I was the police, I'm pretty sure I could resolve more conflicts most oh, people yeah. in the community than any outsider could. Cause I grew up with these individuals. It's like, yeah. bro, we went like, yeah. I know y'all used to spend the night over your house as kids. Like bro, yes. what's, what's really going on? I, I could be a more effective, you know, like, you know, conflict resolver, you know what I mean? Because yes. I I'm from here, you know? So, and I think that, um, yes I, uh, the other side of that though is uh we got to recognize too that um sometimes you know um people who have great intentions join law enforcement and become a part of the problem you know they uh they mm-hmm. actually probably go into it thinking that they can do great things and uplift their community but they i guess get in there and sometimes drink the kool-aid or hang around individuals or be influenced by individuals that they shouldn't be influenced by yes. and at least them becoming as oppressive as any yes. oppressor. You know, so yes. that that is something that of course, you know, has to be kind of like balanced with, you know, yes. the community members are are doing them badges. But yes. it's something that um we definitely it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had because I yeah. think um all out war against the police is not an option. And that's not something that uh yeah. It's sustainable. That's not something that's going to lead to uh, progress as a culture, as a community. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know what? We need to um, start deploying some heavily uh, strategic and and tactical diplomatic moves, you know what I mean? Which is infiltration and making sure that we are steering law enforcement towards actually being servants of our community and protectors of our communities instead of antagonists. You know?
0: I love it. I love it. Wow. That's a good point to kind of close out. Andrew, do you have anything?
1: Not that I can think of other than something I was thinking um, throughout the talk as we were discussing is about um, I'm looking a lot or I'm writing an article right now just about the purpose of impact um, and like realizing what why you were put onto this planet or what impact you would like to choose to have when you I just figure out why you're here. I um, mean, I think that listening to you talk, I was able to understand one of the reasons why you're here on this planet. I think that you inspired me from that. Kind of like the time like the hour that we've been able to speak. I've I've learned so much and, and been able to to soak so much knowledge from understanding your purpose on on in your world and the spaces that you enter and also the one and the privilege that we have to be able to speak to you. So I really appreciate that. Oh I appreciate it bro. I appreciate
0: yeah. it. Yeah I mean and I, and I no, thank you uh, yeah because you're right I mean you I appreciate your being willing to share your lived experience and take in just the fact that you're you have whatever you're The universe had you had a plan for you, you know. Probably, you know, you probably would not have chosen that plan, but obviously, (laughs) uh, it chose me. Yeah, it chose you, and you and and you are doing what the planet and the universe has put you here to do. You know, after whatever that was, what the stuff that you went through. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to. Probably have you back again at some time, maybe next year. I, I'm, definitely, uh, yeah. I'm definitely
2: open to it, you know. Yeah, uh, no.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have been, um, like I said, we'll, you know, when we get ready to sign off, we're going we're gonna to chat a few minutes before you go before you actually leave. So any parting words, uh, Tyrone,
2: that you want to leave with? Us? Yeah, I do want to, um, you know, shameless plug time The North Carolina, uh, North Carolina central actual innocence. Look y'all we are having a fundraiser at bull city barbecue, October 7th, you know, um, come through, get some food and bull city barbecue is going to donate a portion of our profits to the North Carolina central actual innocence. So we can help guys get out of prison who don't deserve to be there, who are innocent of the charges that they've been, um, Serving time for, you know. So y'all come on and support us, man. October 7th, Bull City Barbecue. You
0: know? Bull City Barbecue. Okay, cool. Thank you. That I mean that that's great. And we're gonna um I probably need a link for that. I probably we can find it my my social media guru. We can do that and put that out as a link. So when we post that, we will definitely Okay. Definitely help you with that. So yeah, I'll share a
2: link in my book, too. So I'll share it. It's on Amazon.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put that out there as well, too. So thank you, uh Tyrone, for, for this really motivating conversation. I feel really good about it. Um, thank you. This this has been good stuff. Thank y'all,
2: thank you all, you and Five O. Thank y'all for having me.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Andrew, um, take it easy. I guess I'll I'm gonna come visit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I ain't going to bring no food, but I'll come visit.
1: All
0: right. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Uh, As usual, uh, those of us that are, are continuing to support us, thank you so much. And again, thanks to Tyrone Baker for joining us. And as always, stay well, stay safe. Peace.